Hey, welcome to the City Paper Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. Our interview today is with John Cameron Mitchell. He's the creator behind Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which, if you don't know what it is, it's a book, it's a Broadway play, it's a movie, and it involves a genderqueer East Berliner named Hedwig. It involves a botched sexual reassignment surgery, and it involves lots of really, really fabulous music. That's a terrible synopsis, but Hedwig makes for a tough blurb, so just, you know, go see it. On March 26, John Cameron Mitchell comes to Pittsburgh for Night of a Thousand Hedwigs, though he says that title's a little bit off. Anyway, it's from the gay and lesbian film festival Real Q, and the event is happening at the Ace Hotel in East Liberty. It also includes a screening of the 2001 film version of Hedwig in which Mitchell stars and directs, and after the movie there's a dance party DJed by Mitchell and friends. More on that later. Anyway, we've got two tickets to the event to give away, and that's pretty much what we plan on doing with them. Here's how you get them. Tweet the code word, which I'll reveal in a second, at us, at PGHCityPaper, using the hashtag CPPodcast. Are you ready for the code word? It's sandwiches. Later in the show, Celine heads to Leona's ice cream sandwiches for some ice cream sandwiches, and I sit down with our panel doing our best to figure out what happened in last week's shooting in Wilkinsburg and how the community is responding so far. Stick around. Okay, back to my talk with John Cameron Mitchell. Beyond Hedwig, Mitchell is also behind the film's Rabbit Hole and Short Bus, and he recently started a gig portraying Andy Warhol on the HBO show Vinyl. Last year, he returned to his iconic role as Hedwig on Broadway, and I started by asking if audience response to the play had changed since it debuted in the late 90s. Well, I think it just builds and you get to the point where uh, something has its own value, but then there's a value that the, uh, the audience member has attached to it because they saw it at a certain time in their life. So it adds, you know, a nostalgia or a, a connection to memories that, you know, the piece itself doesn't have, though the piece has its own nostalgia, the characters, you know, looking back a lot. Um, and it's a very unusual character in that someone whose story is so strange could be uh, an object of empathy for so many was a bit of a surprise to us. We thought that, you know, but I've always thought the more specific you are in your writing, the more an audience believes that that person could be real. Strangely, to some, she might seem like a, you know, a, a mutilated freak, and to others, it's something completely special. Neither man nor woman. It's like a gender of one and a person of, in one category. So people really relate because they understand that they actually are unique when they think about it, and that might be lonely, but it also might, you know, be quite wonderful. Yeah. Um, I never. F- got great comfort out of feeling that I was like everyone else. I got comfort realizing that I could feel like other people. And we could feel the same thing in a theater together. That gave me great comfort. And we certainly saw that in the Broadway production. One of the things I'm doing in Pittsburgh is going to the Warhol Museum for a private tour because I'm playing Warhol in an HBO show right now called yes. Final, which is really fun, wonderful people. Um, and getting, you know, studying him made me, you know, he became much closer, uh, 
I always felt a little bit ambivalent about his, you know, his original and everything, but he just seemed kind of cold. But getting to know him more, I felt like a real place in my heart for him now, and I want to know more and, I don't know, maybe even write something about him. Have you been there before? No, I haven't been to Pittsburgh since I, since like 70, since like 80 when I came uh, to look at Carnegie Mellon. You know, I went, I ended up going to Northwestern, but, you know, I had a great bus trip across the country and came through Pittsburgh and it made a strong impression. Uh, so it's, it's been that long. It's been 30 years or something, 35 years. Yeah. yeah well, we're going to have a lot of fun with our, uh, screenings and dance party while we're there. Yeah, you want to tell me a little bit about Night of a Thousand Hedwigs? Um, I don't know why it's a thousand. I think there's only one, but maybe some others will arrive, you know, in costume. <laughs> um, I have been with my co-stars, for, my two stars who play the gay couple in Short Bus, we've been DJing a party in New York for eight years once a month, and we take it on the road sometimes, and... Real Q invited us because they're starting to do more fun things throughout the year, including the Peaches Christ thing they did a little while ago. And uh, they thought it would be great to bring our dance party and combine it with some screenings of my films that are more in the queer realm. Um, and and Mattachine is a very, it's a kind of pre-digital dance party in that we play a lot of old, you know, a lot of dance music becomes very sound sounds very much the same right now in pop and dance. It's kind of boring to me, but, you know, all kinds of music is really dance. You know, all music is dance music when you think about it. It's just how you dance and whether you, you know, feel it. And we play a lot of old soul and funk and rock and new wave and country and slow dancing even. So the way, you know, the kind of junior high dance is sort of our, our thing, which is kind of, you know, gets people off their phones and dancing with each other and touching and feeling again and getting away from the digital divide, which, uh, you know, even modern DJs feel the need to change the song every 15 seconds, you know, sort of feeding into the whole, you know, global attention uh, span problem, which, um, you know, is affecting everything from politics to, to dancing. You know, when we were talking about music and you were talking about the effects, or special effects in film, um, it's, I don't want to state this for you, but you know that maybe you have at least a little bit of an aversion to um, some of the dependence on digital culture in life. Today. I like digital culture, just like I like the use—not digital culture, but the digital tools. Mm. Digital culture is a result of, of you know, ubiquitous you know digitism, um, which can be can lead to a kind of dissociation and kind of a loneliness and an isolation behind screens and people not able to actually deal with real life and talking to their parents or even breaking up with their girlfriend or whatever they do by text. And this is very strange when you can't see a face. When you do see a face, you some oftentimes treat it better or understand nuance. You know, being behind a digital divide, it's yes or no. I hate you. I love you. You know? It's only being in the same room with people that you can understand that there is nuance, that there is someone can say one thing and their face says something else, and that that's called drama, that's called yoga, that's called life. All this, you know, there's this complexity in, in everything, and uh, you still have to make decisions. You can't be paralyzed by the complexity, but you you have to take in all information before you do. And I think that 
digital tools are useful in art, in politics, and everything, but they're used lazily. They're used as weapons. They're used as blunt instruments, and they're not... You know, it's interesting the Ex Machina one, best visual, uh, visual effects, as opposed to Star Wars, when there was just a couple of tiny things, you know, a missing arm and a, a head or something in Ex Machina, but they were so elegantly portrayed that everyone said, that is the best special effect, because it actually... It's subtle, it works perfectly in any number of, you know, truckloads of effects in the Avengers and Star Trek. Just, they become equal, they numb out. We are right, you know, we are making music uh, right now and in the last year for my new film, which is actually a punk era uh, story based on a film, sorry, a short story by Neil Gaiman. It's kind of a Romeo and Juliet story with punks and aliens. So we came up with our own punk music and our own alien music. Uh, and we have a lot of people involved uh, with that, with Matmos and Nico Muley and new pornographers and uh, this singer named uh, Martin Tomlinson, who uh, used to be in a band called Selfish Cunt in the 2000s um, in the UK. And he's an amazing singer and he's writing new stuff now. So I... I you know, I don't want to denigrate. People are making good, good things. It's just I haven't really been had my finger on the pulse lately. Right. What's the uh, What's the alien music like? Um, well, we're kind of playing with tropes of what it was to be alien at that time, which you know tended to be kind of like kraut rocky and sort of you know proto you know two boy army Gary Newman ish. So there's. There's definitely odd sounds. I'm trying to avoid electronic sounds and doing more organic sounds manipulated and moved around uh, and sampled a bit, but trying to avoid, you know, the hard EDM type of things, which kind of gets kind of lazy and boring, in my opinion. Um, so analog, I guess, since we could say, or, or just manipulating sounds that exist, you know, into, into beats and things. Um, is it like repetitive, and, like like noise? A, a lot, some of it. There's also choral. You know, there's a, a colony of aliens that sing, only sing, they never speak. And Nico Muley, who's a a modern uh, classical composer, has arranged some some voices for that, and that'll be lovely. And you know, there's some classical feeling about that. Um, but it's fun. We're still discovering it, and we still have you know stuff t- to do. Some people have written new things for us in an old style. Um, there's a punk hybrid, a punk alien hybrid music uh, song that Jamie Stewart from the band Shushu wrote, yeah. uh, who I think are great. They have, you know, the best of that kind of early techno and then a real emotional heart and, very, you know, very dark. Um, this is sort of more their 1978 punk, you know, funk song um, called Eat Me Alive. So we're having a lot of fun with it. So what's the plan for that? What's uh, And also, what's the name? It's called How to Talk to Girls at Parties, and it's starring uh, Elle Fanning, Alex Sharp, and Nicole Kidman, and it's coming out next spring or summer. Uh, they decide that later, and um, I'm really having a blast with it. It's kind of like my YA novel, you know, punk alien story. I'm just very excited to be in Pittsburgh and uh, happy spring to everyone. Yeah. All right, man. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. 
Big thanks to John Cameron Mitchell for talking with me. How amazing does that alien punk movie sound? Can't wait. Don't forget to check out Mitchell when he comes to town for the Night of 1000 Hedwigs at Ace Hotel. And if free tickets are your thing, remember to tweet that code word at us. It's still sandwiches. All right, in the last episode, I made a joke poking fun at the seriousness of our topics last week. And while everybody involved in this podcast wants it to be entertaining and funny, we can't ignore what happened in Wilkinsburg last week. Six people were gunned down at a backyard cookout by two shooters who are still at large. While words and media coverage of any kind often feel phony and insufficient when faced with violence like this, we think it's important to take a look at what happened and where things stand now. So yesterday I sat down with editor Charlie Deach, staff writers Rebecca Nuttall and Ryan Dito for a panel discussion on the events in Wilkinsburg. I started by asking Ryan how the community has responded so far. I went to a community meeting on a Saturday uh, held at the uh, South Avenue Methodist Church uh, in Wilkinsburg, and uh, there was a really big, uh, surprising turnout. They actually, uh, the officials there didn't think there were going to be as many people as there were. I think there were around 300, and uh, they all seemed to be very uh, upset and uh, interested in uh, what kind of action could be taken. All right, can you talk about how uh, government officials reacted uh, to this event and uh, where the investigation is currently? I think we all kind of, right after the event, there seemed to be like a, like a, almost like an instant reaction from most government officials, Governor Wolf, uh, uh, our Senator Pat Toomey, Bob Casey, um, local, uh, you know, local um, people, you know, our county executive, Rich Fisher, and basically all of them were, were deeply saddened by the uh, event. And uh, a few of them even called for um, maybe some immediate action uh, pertaining to uh, gun control. Um, our uh, House Representative, uh, Mike Doyle, who represents most of Allegheny County, he uh, also attended the event uh, on Saturday, and uh, he was very passionate about um, that we basically don't need assault rifles like AK-47s that were um, implicated to be used in the shooting. And, uh, it, you know, it seems like a, like gun control is kind of being brought up again, but maybe not as strongly as uh, one would uh, think after uh, five, five people were killed. Also, at the scene of the shooting the morning after, District Attorney Stephen Zappala was there, and he also brought up, you know, some kind of gun control legislation that he'd like to see in action. Um, but he also mentioned that um, the idea of trying to put more surveillance measures in the neighborhood, maybe some more cameras and some of these back alleyways that are largely unpopulated, again, because the... Um, population there are so small that they have a lot of abandoned houses so a lot of this activity and drug activity as well continues in that neighborhood because they have you know vacant streets where there's not a lot of neighbors there's not a lot of residents so he was saying that some kind of surveillance more cameras would be good for catching some of these things mm. yeah becca you've written about uh, gun control and guns in pittsburgh uh in the past is there any indication about where the guns in this uh shooting came from so there hasn't actually been any information on where the guns came from. The guns were a AK-47 and a 40 caliber handgun. Those were the two guns that were used. They said there were they found more than 50 rounds of um, bullets at the scene. Um, 
And according to officials, there were some people with more than 20 gunshot shot wounds in them um, after the medical examiner did his um, examinations. But they don't have any indication right now of where those weapons came from. Um, we don't know anything about the shooter, so we don't know if they had criminal records that would have prevented them from obtaining and legally purchasing weapons. Um, since we don't know much now, it's very hard to say. Yeah, and not like from what um, one of the um, investigators told me was that these guns are uh, very easy to access and very common. Um, I actually walked into a uh, the Wilkinsburg gun store on... Um, it's on Penn Ave, and you know there were must have been five or six uh, AK-like rifles uh, that could be sold to basically anyone without many restrictions. And there are also plenty of uh, handguns, what they call Glocks, and um, that were also for sale. So uh, this, these weapons that were used uh, were pretty easy to access. And that's kind of the story you hear after there's a shooting in any neighborhood. I've tried to do a couple pieces looking at um, how people with criminal backgrounds are able to access guns so easily. And if you talk to um, one person I talked to is a community activist in the South Hills area, and he said that literally at any moment he would know exactly where to get a gun if he wanted one. As for the shooters, are they just still at large? Is there anything uh, that police have updated recently? They haven't released any information on descriptions of the shooters or anything, really. They have been really trying to keep this, I think, pretty close to the vest because they don't want the shooters to know if they do have any clues as to their identities. All right, so we'll keep an eye on this story moving forward. Charlie, this week you wrote a column where you argued for gun control because of a, a personal experience you had. Do you want to tell us about that experience? Yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I knew that I was going to write something about uh I knew I was going to write something in, in, in the wake of the Wilkinsburg shooting. I, I wasn't sure what. I was here late on Friday trying some different things, and um, I, I just started asking my question, you know, because he, he, here's, here's the, the first thing is I have no faith, even after something like this, I have no faith that any kind of uh, common sense gun control will ever be passed. So you're just beating your head against the wall. So why do I keep beating my head against the wall? That was the question I asked myself. And um, for me, there is, yeah, there is a personal uh, a story behind it. Um, when my mother was five years old, uh, it was June of, I believe, 1952. I have the date in the story. Um, her father, um, and she had, she had nine, eight siblings and one sibling on the way. My grandmother was pregnant at the time. And um, my grandfather, who would often uh, get drunk and, beat the crap out of his family, his wife and his children, um, decided that he was going to, uh, decided he was going to kill them. Uh, he got a rifle. He lined them up against the wall. My mom described it as, you know, sort of being like a deer sort of, you know, in front of a hunter. And again, she was five years old at the time. I, I can't imagine, um, you know, what that must've been. I couldn't imagine what it would've been like for the older kids, the teens, you know, as well. Um, so they were all pretty sure they were going to die. And my grandmother, uh, for whatever reason, well, I'm sure I know the reason, but it just came on her to to get the gun. And so she um, fought my grandfather for the gun. And as I write in the column, there, there are two sort of variations of what happened. One is that during the struggle, the gun went off, killing my, my grandfather. And the other is that when my grandmother got the gun away from him, she decided that this was never going to happen again. And uh, through talking to my grandmother uh, before she passed, um, spent a lot of time with her, um, especially in probably in the last year of her life. And uh, 
you know, she was uh, she wasn't she wasn't ashamed of what happened. She, uh, you know, I'm sure she would she would have done the same thing all over again. But um, it's something that she wouldn't want anybody doesn't want anybody else, didn't want anybody else to go through. And uh, so that was sort of the motivating factor for me is uh, just sort of, uh, you know, it's weird because what what really hit me was I probably have no right sitting here right now because one guy with one gun almost wiped out an entire bloodline. My grandmother had like 42 grandchildren out of out of nine kids and, uh, you know, countless great-grandchildren. That entire bloodline just would have been shut down in that moment by one guy with one gun who had too much to drink. And um, that to me is 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 heavy because I think if you start thinking about you know, I mean, we're fighting this fight now, even though we're, you know, we're running into, you know, we're tilting at windmills kind of. We got to keep fighting because we're, we're fighting for, for, for people that uh, for folks that aren't even born yet, that uh, hopefully this can be a world that uh, these kinds of things don't happen. And so that's why that's why I keep fighting and sort of arguing for gun control. And, um, you know, this isn't a story my family talks about. This is this is the first time. Uh, you know, I'm actually, I actually am pretty open with my life. I, you know, and I talk about a lot of stuff. But um, closest friends have never have never heard this story because it's just. I mean, how do you bring it up in you yeah. know in a conversation? But you know, I've written about this topic before, and it never it never really thought and came up. But um, it came up Friday, and uh, I you know I have I have lots of family, uh, but the only person that I cared about was my mother. I called my mother and I asked her if she minded if I shared this story and. She said she would actually uh, appreciate it if I if I shared the story. So, you know, yeah, it's it's not something you know. It's just something that's that's never spoke of in my family, and I I, I think that that's part of the problem. All right, thanks to Becca, Ryan, and Charlie for joining me today. To read any of the stories we discussed, check out our print edition, which you can find for free in city paper boxes around the city, or go to www. .pghcitypaper.com All right, we're going to keep our eyes on Wilkinsburg in this next segment. This week on Soundbite, Celine takes us to Leona's Ice Cream Sandwiches. If you've never experienced them, these are four-inch thick sandwiches made from locally sourced ice cream stuffed between two homemade cookies. You can find them at more than 20 area shops and restaurants. The place where all this magic happens, that's the former Smith's Bakery in Wilkinsburg. Celine visited on production day, more on that later, which made for some great audio. Listen up. So this is our um, bakery slash ice cream baking facility. Um, Over here we have all of our mixers. Uh, they're quite large. We do large batches of dough, so it works out really well. And by large, what are we looking at? You could fit in it. <laughs> the, so we've got um, 120 quart and an 80 quart and a 40 quart. We are here today in Wilkinsburg for a soundbite, and we are at the Old Smith's Bakery talking to Katie Heldstab of Leona's Ice Cream Sandwiches. Hi. Hi, welcome. So I'm really curious about how you got into the business. It kind of took two different paths. My wife and I got an ice cream maker for our wedding, which is perfect for someone who likes to tinker in the kitchen like me. 
but I'm also lactose intolerant. So it was kind of like a yay, I get a new toy, boo, I can't eat anything out of it. So I decided to um, make lactose-free ice cream for myself just to you mess around with it, see if it worked. And several years ago, we had a an ice cream social at our house and it was all my concoctions of lactose-free ice cream and people loved it. On a parallel path, I was working at uh, a public relations firm doing food PR and had been doing food PR for years. And my job was on the opposite side of the desk of all of the food people. And I realized I'm on the wrong side of this desk. So I figured out how to get myself on the other side. And it kind of took a circuitous route to a different job and then to culinary school. And finally, um, to Penn State ice cream course. So I did that, that course to kind of make sure that this is what I wanted to do. And I had the skills to then go and do it in, a, in the right way. That course is pretty legendary among food people. In fact, I would love to get out there sometime with my producer and I and record some of the classes that they do. Can you tell me about what your experience was like there? Taking that class really gives you an intensive look at everything surrounding making ice cream, from how to select your dairy to the science of freezing to you know, the end product and marketing as well. So it's really a fantastic class. And you get to eat a lot of ice cream. I guess I'd pictured that class as wrongly, of course, as just people like in an ice cream parlor, <laughs> like half the day you spend with your hairnet on and your white coat, and then half the day it's silver spoons. <laughs> Is that, I guess that's not how it works. No, that's like the last 45 minutes of the whole <laughs> course. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's more intense than that. And you, you get to meet all of the machine manufacturers. You get to meet dairy suppliers, um, flavoring suppliers. And it really is set up as an intense look at the ice cream business. And they would rather have you spend $1,200 to take the class than go into business, realize it's not for you, and lose your house. It seems like it, it must be really for you because you've not only settled on ice cream, but you've, you've settled so specifically on ice cream sandwiches. So coming from a marketing background um, and doing a lot of studying on small business, people tend to fall into what I like to call scope creep. You're like, oh, I can do ice cream and 10 other products with the same thing. And then you end up spreading yourself really thin and your scope creeps larger and larger. And I find that the most successful businesses do a few things and they do them very well. So what is the chemistry of an ice cream sandwich cookie? Well, after millions of cookies tested <laughs> and, and much to the chagrin of my genes, um, not fitting me very well, um, we've figured out that the cookie needs to be the right texture when frozen. Anyone can make a really good fresh cookie, but can you make a good frozen cookie that you still want to eat? Because that's the format 
that our ice cream sandwiches are in. They're all that's stuck to a piece of ice cream in the freezer. So do you have an all-star cookie? One that just shines above all the rest, like a pinnacle of ice cream sandwich light? Absolutely. It's our oatmeal lace cookie. Uh, I like to call it our gateway drug. It is very, very good. And it's basic. It's super simple. Um, it's a version of a twill cookie, which is just... Um, you probably had them before. It's like caramely on top and there's chocolate on the bottom. They're crunchy and kind of chewy. So it's oats, butter, sugar, some eggs, vanilla. That's it. There's a little bit of flour, very little. Um, but it's chewy and caramely and fantastic. And it, it goes well with fruit flavors. It goes well with, um, I don't, want to call them savory but our non-fruit classic ice creams so we do um, a cinnamon on oatmeal lace which is a classic combination of ours and it seems to be everybody's favorite once they try it they're like oh my gosh um, it goes really great on fruit we do it with uh, peach like roasted peach on oatmeal lace and a blueberry on oatmeal lace and it's fantastic you do a lot of seeds well not even you do a lot you only do seasonal flavors and is that out of sort of a personal dedication to keeping things local and fresh combined with cost consideration so we do seasonal because it started out we can get the fruit we can get when we can get it which means when it's ripe uh, we also try to keep it as local as possible just because we do have really great produce in pennsylvania um, and Oftentimes, it is a lot more cost-effective for me to go to Triple B's Berry Farm and pick up 300 pounds of berries than it is for me to go to like a food warehouse type place. There's a lot of Pennsylvania heritage here, both in the way that you're doing things and also the things that you're making your ice cream with. You know, being in a historic building in, um, in Wilkinsburg means so much to me personally and professionally. I feel that the, the, the cookie spirit animal of this building is being revived. Uh, we work with Michael Smith, the son of the original owner, Smith's Bakery, um, to keep all of our equipment running. And I just have a really big connection to historical buildings and methods. And I don't know what it is, I've just always wanted to do things the way they were done, but also in, in a more of a modern sense. On that realm, who is Leona? So Leona was our um, adopted dog. She was a boxer. We got her at 10 years old. Um, she lived a pretty rough life before we got her, and we tried to make up for that in the last couple years that we had her. Um, she was an inspiration for lots of reasons, just because she came out of a really crappy situation and had the most pleasant disposition you'd ever, you know, hope to get for, for a rescue that's been through a rough time. Um, and kind of that happiness is what we've sought to spread. So ice cream ultimately like makes you happy or it should make you happy. And if it doesn't, I'm so sorry. Like there are other things that we need to talk about then. So if you had one sound that you hear on your day-to-day -day work that encapsulates your ice cream experiences, what would it be? It would be the whirring of my machine.
it's almost like a and it, it's soothing and like the most perfect white noise. Great. Thanks so much for talking to us and letting us come in today. Absolutely. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Celine. We've linked to Leona's ice cream sandwiches on our podcast page so that you can find out where to buy these decadent treats on your own. Celine Roberts here with your weekend calendar. The Carnegie International Film Festival kicks off this Thursday and will run through April. Take a look at the schedule now to make sure you don't miss any great films. I highly recommend the Spanish film Magical Girl and Cartel Land, an Oscar-nominated film. This is a great opportunity to see movies outside of the screening scope of many commercial theaters. Friday and Saturday, head to the August Wilson Center to see the original story of The Man of Steel in a production of Superman 2050. Seven actors will perform on one tiny 3x7-foot platform. With the audience's help, they will create the props, scenes, sounds, and characters that make up Metropolis in 2050. This Saturday and Sunday, feast your eyes on some gorgeous blooms at the Orchid Society Show in the Phipps Garden Center. This year's theme is Orchid Odyssey. The programming will include Q&A sessions with expert orchid growers, plants for sale, and educational seminars. Come learn about one of the only plants that grows in all the continents except for Antarctica and comes in every color except for black. The second stage at Prime Stage Theater tries to make their theater immersive and to engage their audiences in open dialogue. This Sunday only for their latest project, The Exonerated, you will be transported through excerpts from the interviews, letters, transcripts, case files, and public records of six wrongfully convicted persons on death row. Each story of survival is a window into the American justice system. And with that, I'm out of here. I'm Celine Roberts. Go and have some fun this weekend. Thanks, Celine, And thanks to you for listening. That does it for Episode 9. This week's podcast, as well as the previous eight, were produced by Ashley Murray and me, Alex Gordon, with Celine Roberts. Our panel discussion today featured staff writers Ryan Dito and Becca Nuttall, as well as our editor, Charlie Deesh. This episode also included music by the local artist Amok and his song Binge. That's our MP3 Monday track this week and can be found and downloaded for free on our blog at pghcitypaper.com. Additional music by me, Alex Gordon. We post on Facebook and tweet on Twitter, which is really the only way to do it. Find us those places at PGH City Paper. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet on iTunes, now I believe is the time to do it. It costs exactly zero dollars. Lastly, we have some very exciting things coming up on the podcast in the next few weeks, so I really hope you keep tuning in. Thanks again.